This podcast is sponsored by tenofos.com. Tenofos.com handpick the best Christian books that point to Jesus and sell them at discounted prices. Finding Hope Under Bethlehem Skies by Robin Ham is an Advent devotional journeying through the book of Ruth, helping us to see the magnitude of God's promises for a saviour in the darkest of places. I don't know about you, but I always find it hard to commit to reading an Advent devotional daily. But I also find that if I actually start reading it in November, I'm much more likely to keep going with it until Christmas. Why not go and grab your copy now and soak up these wonderful reflections, preempting the busyness of the Christmas season. Hello everyone, welcome to Two Sisters and a Cup of Tea. My name is Felicity and I live in America and this is my sister Sarah. She lives in the UK. Hi everyone, what's in your bag Felicity? Well I'm sticking with my um, loose leaf tea which always makes me feel very sophisticated. Um, it's called Melody Assam. I bought it. I, I think I talked about it last episode actually. Isn't this the one you had last time? Yes, but that's okay. I, I actually spent okay. a fair amount of money on it. So <laughs> I'm intending on drinking it frequently and I'm actually really enjoying it a lot more than I thought I would. Oh, I good. mean, would you offer it out to other people? Yes, I'm actually I'm actually trying to offer it to people because I think other people need to recognize that it is sometimes worth spending more than it costs for a Yorkshire mm. tea bag. Mm. Yeah, fair. It's quite refined. Well, I've got a bit off piste because I think with the fact that we don't really drink coffee, it's it is a bit limiting, isn't it? This just on the tea thing. So um <laughs> I've actually got a hot chocolate in my hand. Oh, well that is pleasing, especially as we're kind of vaguely heading towards winter and hot chocolatey kind of times. Yeah, I think so. It's it's lovely. Yeah. Is it in, I mean, have you made it with milk or water though? Because that's a bit of a game changer. I put the powder in and then I put maybe like a sixth of the cup is then milk and I mix it into a paste oh. and then I put the hot water on top and it bubbles up. Very well trained in that, I feel. Mm. I feel we've come from the yeah. same background of being trained in such things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, we were talking before we um, got going about how we actually discuss Esther not just us, but also those who are listening and Mm -hmm. what it might look like to actually pick up a conversation with someone about this. So assuming that someone has said to a friend, hey, there's this podcast, these two vaguely like listenable to people are talking about Esther, do you want to listen along with me? What happens Mm -hmm. next? Like, how do you actually start a conversation about it? Great question. I think it can be quite tricky sometimes. It can feel a bit awkward kind of getting into that territory. But that is why we've got the show note kind of questions over a cup of tea questions for that reason, to just kind of make that segue a little bit easier. Um, And they just kind of unpack. Well, they just help people to just think a little bit deeper on what we've been chatting about and get into the text themselves. Because I think the temptation with something like this is that you trust what we say rather than actually just having a look Mm. for yourself. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's 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 right. And and in that then, so do have a look at the show note questions because make use of them. And what we've done is we've tried to make it so that there's a couple of questions that get you into the text for yourself, just kind of observation really, like what's actually being said. And then we're thinking, well, what does that actually mean? And, and helping to drive it to the heart. And the thing is, our conversations are really quite short. I'm watching our stopwatch go down and it's getting shorter by the minute. <laughs> but so our conversations are really quite short. So they're just a starting point. So there's so much more that could be talked about isn't there so we'd really encourage you to just give it a go even if it feels a bit awkward at first like I think you sort of begin to find your rhythm on these things don't you if you're used to talking yeah, definitely. about people but let's get cracking because you know time's running down the clock already 
Yes. Is that how you say it? Is that the phrase? <laughs> I'm not sure, but let's move on. The clock okay. is ticking. Yes. <laughs> that one. Okay. I'm reading chapter eight. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favour and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther and they have impaled him on a pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews, as it seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month of the month of Sivan. They wrote out all of Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people, and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality, so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honour. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Yay! It's all turning out okay. <laughs> it's so good, isn't it? We we're on the final stretch, aren't we, in terms of where we're at in Esther. If you've just joined us now, you might want to actually go back a few episodes and listen to the beginning because this is the, mm-hmm. the triumphant culmination. And what a scene. What a scene of joy, joy, joy. <laughs> it really is. And as you say, it's such a combination of what's happened. And I think one of the biggest things that we noticed going through this, isn't it, is that it's, um, I think in a couple of episodes ago, we were talking about how different chapters mirror one another in Mm. the structure of the book. And what's really noticeable is how much this chapter, chapter eight, mirrors chapter three and kind of undoes everything that happened in that chapter. 
Yes, with and and it's like Mordecai and Haman have kind of switched places, haven't they? Because it was yeah. Haman who was the one who was given the ring, like ordered this decree, sent it out, all of those things. Interesting, I, I find it kind of all points to really how Xerxes is not that great a guy, really, that he's not very involved. He kind of gives his authority over just so easily. And I mean, I'm glad he's given it to Mordecai at this point, but it is interesting that really... It's who it's between Haman and Mordecai. So as we see Mordecai, uh, as we see Haman go down and we see Mordecai rise, then so we know that the the fortunes of God's people are are on the up as well. Yeah, big time. I think it's just I, I just find it fascinating. It's all the details. Like the narrator seems really specific in kind of reversing all the details. So as you mentioned, it's the signet ring given. Um, it's the decree. It's how the edict um is kind of. Uh, broadcast it's the contents of the edict it's exactly the opposite of what um you know it was originally said the exact day yeah um yeah absolutely Mordecai's clothing I think is just in again like really interesting just the fact that he's now in robes and he was in sackcloth um the emotions of God's people they were bewildered in cha- at the end of chapter three and now they're like joyous like just everything isn't it mm. like it's just yeah, it's really interesting going back over it and just like underlining everything that's been reversed. Yeah, and and thinking about why that is actually happening, like what it is so perfectly kind of constructed, isn't it? And it's not that it's made up in that sense, but I think the narrator is showing us that God is absolutely in control of every detail. Mm. And I feel like the beauty of it and the kind of structural mirroring of it just highlights all the more God really has got it all, every single detail. And that's not just true of Esther, that's true of history as a whole. And that's part of what we see here as well, isn't it? So we're seeing the reversal in terms of the mirroring of chapter three, but we're seeing it's beginning to point us to a greater reversal, isn't it, of what's going to happen for God's people throughout Mm -hmm. history and ultimately at the end of time. Yeah, for sure. And I think, yeah, it's just been so rich, hasn't it? starting to see that kind of unpack itself in the book and really starting to see the full weight of it now mm. um I think I I don't know about you I'd be really struck about the timing just how specific the timing has been so the fact that God's hand was really over that initial lot when it was cast for the edict to fall on that particular day in the month of Adar and then that there's been enough time for another edict to go out yeah so that basically that was like a year and there's enough time for these horses to go out to every province in the empire and reverse the edict mm-hmm. in that time. Like that's just extraordinary, isn't it? That that again, like just God's sovereign hand over that kind of detail. Yeah, absolutely. And especially if you think back to last the last chunk we were looking at, we were like, come on, Esther, like ask the question now. Like you kind of want to yeah. force the timing. But I think this gives us confidence in God's timing in every sense, that his salvation comes at exactly the right time. Triumph comes at exactly the right time. And I think Mm -hmm. that means that that kind of just drives us all the more to trust him with that. I think that's one of the greatest challenges of the Christian life, isn't it? The Mm -hmm. actually trusting that God's timing is exactly right. This is just how it should be, even when circumstances, which for the Jewish people in this time, it must have been hard, mustn't it, to really think, really believe that they should wait on God's timing. Big time, terrifying, because they're under this huge sentence of death, aren't they? But like as we were, we were kind of unpacking this a little bit before um, and just realising actually 
this happens as a result of prayer and fasting. And so God's people are depending on the Lord all the more. And it's also, we've seen Esther step up and step out in faith. We've seen Mordecai gone from kind of hiding his faith to proclaiming it and kind of stepping into it. And like, so we've seen God's people grow Mm. in this timing, haven't we? And I think that's just super encouraging as well as we start to see those kind of details unpacked through the story, don't you think? I I agree. I think that's a really key thing here. So then rather than it just being about the kind of the grand action and the kind of the thing, obviously we're all bothered about whether God's people are going to be saved in this narrative, but the fact that God is at work in the ordinary Mm. almost the ordinary faithfulness in the background is so encouraging to us isn't it because actually it's not all about the big stuff that's going to happen it is in our ordinary every day that God is growing his people and drawing us closer to him because I think that is what goes on with Mordecai and Esther they seem to have Mm -hmm. a kind of renewed understanding of who God is and a, a boldness in that a confidence in their faith which we haven't seen before and don't you think that's what he's trying to like what's happening in the book of Esther is that it's kind of um firming up that foundation of what we believe about God's sovereignty mm. so that we can be those people who grow in these times do you think yeah I think that's absolutely right I think there's I think it's like the ground is just being kind of yeah we're kind of being bedded into this ground that we're more and more certain of isn't it the kind of the bedrock Mm. of our faith which obviously is Jesus but as we trust in Jesus we trust in God's sovereignty that brings about all of these things according to his purposes and I think Mm. the more we believe that and trust that the more likely we are to actually keep following Jesus to keep walking his way and essentially waiting on God's timing in the sense of when Jesus comes back like what it looks like to to bring glory to him now, all those kind of questions that are everyday yeah, Christian time. walk kind of things. What about the joy that we have seen here? Oh, it's just amazing. Like it's like a kind of joy bomb, isn't it? Like there's just like so many joy words at the end of the chapter, which I think the narrator's being really specific again. He's really drawing your attention to that, isn't he? Is it's mm. joy, happiness, gladness, honor, joy, feasting, celebrating. Like there's just so much there. And it's the right response, isn't it? It's the right response to what, you know, they're seeing their salvation unpacked and it is the right response. And it's also really challenging in that as well, isn't it? Just how joyful they are. Yeah, I yeah, I know. And you can kind of, I feel like we can see why they're so joyful because they've been on the precipice of disaster and yeah. that has been averted. But for us, actually, if we think about the big story of where we're at, we are sinners on the precipice of kind of God's wrath and then we're saved Mm -hmm. and yet we kind of lack joy don't we because it's hard to think about that in the everyday so I think this is a really good kind of reminder of the level of joy that maybe we should have as we think about salvation and and yeah you were challenging me earlier like have we have we just become a bit dull in the way that we feel that joy not have we become dull like have (laughs) have our have our hearts become dulled to it? <laughs> What's my actual phrase? That is true. Good point. It's a slightly different meaning. I see that. Yes. <laughs> no, I think I was just reminded of Paul's command in the Philippians where he says, I tell you again, rejoice in the Lord always. And I think we're really, we're really quick to neglect that command. Mm. And it, it is a command and it takes work to rejoice. Like it's not a kind of just, I'm going to wake up happy every day. Of course we're not. Like, and these guys, like, 
actually God hasn't saved them yet. Like there's still, yeah. you know, there's still a couple of chapters to come, but there's still an intentional joy in in him at work, in God at work. And actually just thinking through, okay, what does it look like to to remain soft in heart towards our salvation? How do we intentionally cultivate that and think upon those things? Yeah, absolutely. And I think a part of that is seeing it more and more, isn't it? So the more we see it, so reading something like Esther, see mm. it, realize how that applies to us, delight in it. And then they kind of, it's just a continual thing, isn't it? We re- need reminding of it. Every yeah, day. Every day. Yeah. Every day. But there's also a ripple effect of their joy, isn't there? People, other people are joining God's people. And yes, we don't know all the motivations here, and some are out of fear, but there's a sense where the narrator's just pointing us back to Abraham's promise yeah. and pointing us forward to the Great Commission, where it's saying, This is for all nations. Like this joy is for all nations because salvation is for everyone, and all nations will be blessed. And that's really exciting. Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree. And so as we think on these things, then actually um, it lays open the opportunity to just consider, do we actually feel like this? Are our hearts inclined towards being excited in this way, being joyful in this way? As you say, not a false joy, but just a kind of looking at what God is doing and having confidence in that and trusting that mm-hmm. and being delighted in that. And so should we pray? Let's, let's be prayers in an open, honest fashion. I think it, it. I think it just opens a candid conversation with the Lord, doesn't it? Because actually, of course, we don't feel like this the whole time, and of course, just of course, um, but actually, we can just come to the Lord in our in the reality of where where we're at with that, whether we're feeling far from the Lord or whether we're we're doing fine or whatever it is, come to the Lord and ask Him to grow that joy in us, grow our wonder and marveling at this salvation. Yeah. Felicity, would you pray for us in that vein? Yes. Uh, Father God, we um, praise you that we can come to you in all honesty without having to pretend to be anything we're not. We um, praise you that you are the one who enables us to have joy. And so we pray that you would help us as we consider our salvation, as we see the big picture of what you're doing in Esther and see how that points to the Lord Jesus. We pray that we would be delighted in our inner being, in our hearts, Um, by what you are doing. Give us joy, Father, that we might be um, like these people here that we read of in Esther, full of joy for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, do remember to check out the show note questions. Uh, That has felt as ever like a whistle-stop tour and there's (laughs) so much that we haven't dwelt on in that chapter and it's so rich. So do make the most of just going over it by yourself or with someone else, grab someone else and why not sit down and read chapter eight together? And uh, we look forward to rounding up Esther next week. No, can you believe it? We're almost done. Crazy. It is. It's a wonderful thing. Okay. See you all next time. Goodbye. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast has been sponsored by tenofthose.com.